As we're getting our Bibles out this morning, uh, I would like to speak to our visitors. If you're here for the first time, or maybe you're not a member and you've been here for a couple of times, I wonder if you notice uh, how much what we do here together on a Sunday morning is not a production. I wonder if you felt the weight of that. Kind of long walks from people in the back of the church walking up to the podium to speak. You know, the way that we don't have music playing people on and off the stage. You should know that that's on purpose. We don't want this to feel like a production because it's not. I also wonder if you've noticed that this morning on stage as our brother Tim led us in the service, as Peter Rogers led us in a prayer of confession, as our sister Jenny read scripture for us so well, as Mac Patterson led us in a prayer of praise, I wonder if you've noticed that none of those people are professionals. They're not on staff at this church. They're members of this church, and they're serving this church with their giftings. I don't have any uh, explanatory comment on that. I just hope that you notice it, and I hope it's significant to you. Let's make sure that our Bibles are open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home, and I would encourage you to read it. The words of life are contained therein. If you study the history of the world, you probably know that the history of this world is from one angle, the story of great empires conquering one another. The Syrians conquered the Egyptians, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, the Greeks conquered the Persians, the Romans conquered the Greeks, and so on, and so on, and so on, down to our own day. Last year, in 2019, we had the 500-year anniversary of the conquest of Mexico and the Aztec Empire by the conquistadores and uh, the Empire of Spain. I'm trying not to say it in a pretentious Spanish accent, but I I tried so long to nail that accent down so well. I'll say it the white way from here, here, for, here on out, okay? Now, for most of us, it's probably been a while since ninth grade history, and you're like, I don't know who the conquistadors are and who Hernan Cortez is, so let me just give you a little bit of a refresher. Uh, Cortez went out on behalf of Charles V, the emperor of Spain, uh, and he conquered uh, the Aztec Empire with basically what was nothing more than a handful of men. Why did he do this? What was his motivation? As is always the case with the human heart, things are more complicated than they may first appear. Some say that Cortez was just greedy for gold. He was a wealthy Spanish nobleman and he wanted more treasure than he already had, so he was going to go get it. Others think that the work of the conquistadors were that their work was just an extension of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it was, it was their way of trying to lay hold of every corner of this globe. The truth is, is that there were multiple motivating factors in what Cortez and the rest of the conquerors did in this new world. Historians typically talk about the three G's, greed, glory, and God. This is certainly true of Cortez. Speaking of greed, Cortez himself admitted to being literally sick with greed. I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can only be cured with gold. All right, that's greed. And there's God. In matters of godliness, 
Cortez was, like most Catholic noblemen in the 16th century, inconsistent. He was once injured trying to flee the bedroom of a married woman. He took his native female interpreter as his mistress and concubine while he was in the New World, and he did a whole bunch of other really nasty things that we don't need to talk about here. Nevertheless, Cortez saw himself as an agent of God in the New World, at least in part to crush the idolatry of the natives and to institute what he thought was the pure religion of the triune God. But that's not all. Cortez, like so many men before him, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, Alexander the Great, he wanted glory. He wanted to use his short time on this earth to secure for himself a glory beyond the grave. This is how he said it. Certain it is, my friends and companions, that every good man of spirit desires and strives by his own effort to make himself the equal of the excellent men of his day and even those of the past. And so it is that I am embarking upon a great and beautiful enterprise which will be famous in times to come. And friends, he was right. We're talking about him today. Because I know in my heart that we shall all take vast and wealthy lands, people such as have never before been seen, and kingdoms greater than those of our monarchs. Cortes was a servant of Spain, a servant of the king, and his job was to conquer the new, mo- uh, the new world. His motivations for doing so were complex and varied. Now consider the Apostle Paul, a servant of King Jesus, whose life was dedicated to one thing and one thing only, proclaiming the gospel of Christ crucified. Now his motivations were simple. They were singular. The glory of God alone. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at Paul's motivations in declaring the gospel. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul was saying, listen, I don't preach the gospel for the approval of man. And because of that, I don't employ flattery. Last week, we saw that Paul said, I don't preach the gospel out of greed. That's not why I do it. And today, we're going to see that the reason why Paul preaches the gospel has nothing to do with his own personal glory. You can see that if you look at verse 6. Look there. First uh, Thessalonians 2.6, it says, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, I do think that verses 7 and 8 are connected to verse 6. Let me just read those so we can see them. It says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So I think in verse 6, Paul is saying, listen, I didn't do this. I didn't come seeking glory. And then in verses 7 and 8, Paul is saying positively, I did do this. I came to you gentle like a nursing mother. We're going to talk about that next week. This morning, we're only going to focus on what Paul says he didn't do. So what I'm going to do now is just go ahead and read verses 1 through 8, just so that we can make sure we have these verses in context. And then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into the body of the sermon. Sound good? Oh. Sound good? Uh, There we go. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God 
to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. We know that your word is the same thing as your deed. When you speak, things change. You say, let there be light, and light exists. You call out and save a people for yourself, and they are saved. Your word comes into our hearts and we are sanctified. So would you cleanse us this morning from the filth of this world and build us back up in the knowledge of the holy. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If I asked you to define a football for me, I'm sure you could. Wouldn't be too hard, right? Mm. Even if you're like me and you don't know much about sports ball, You could probably say, well, it's got this shape, right? And it's got these white stripes and it's, uh, no, laces, Uh uh-huh. See, even if you struggle, you could do it, right? It's got laces and it's got the two white stripes and it's reddish in color. And if you throw it, it kind of spins like this. What if I asked you to define beauty? Could you do that? It's a little more difficult. Not so easy. It's a little more abstract, this concept of beauty. Well, now think about the word glory. If I asked you to define glory for me, do you think you could? It's pretty important that you understand what glory is if you want to understand the point of this morning's text, because Paul is saying, I did not come to you preaching the gospel as a glory seeker. Okay, well, what exactly is glory? It's this funny word. We use it all the time, right? When we talk our Christianese, right? We just throw these words around. We've read them in the Bible. But if I asked you to, if I said, don't, okay, don't even, you know, you don't have to define it, but just try to explain it to me. I bet you'd have a hard time. In the Old Testament, the primary word for glory is kabod which was used to talk about something that had a heavy weight to it, kind of like a, a rich man's possessions. Right? Which, when weighed, were obviously very heavy. Right? The richer he was, the heavier his possessions were. And because he had so much possessions, he would also have more weight and significance in the community. That's typically how it works. You have a little bit more money, you got a little bit more power, a little bit more prestige. It's kind of a play on words. In the Old Testament, the word glory is used to communicate a kind of weight a significance, an authority. So when we talk about the glory of God, for example, we're referring to the way in which God and the reality of who he is bears down on us, right? It's the the reality of his persons and 
presence. And when we think about his attributes, his, his goodness, his infinite nature, his invisibility, his omniscience, when we consider all of that, it bears down on us. It causes us to slump our shoulders a little bit, or at least it should. And maybe part of the problem with our modern church is that it doesn't. But that's for another sermon. If you've ever been in the presence of someone that you greatly admire, kind of like a personal hero, then you've probably already experienced a little taste of what I'm talking about, you know. Even if you recognize that, like, yeah, our heroes are humans just like us, you know that your hero still tends to feel bigger than life. If you ever meet one of your heroes, you know that they, they fill the room. When we're around them, we kind of feel like we can't breathe when they're, we're in their presence. There is a weight, a bearing down upon us. That brings a kind of authority with it. If you've never understood glory in this way and you've only ever thought about glory in terms of like fame or what C.S. Lewis calls luminosity, uh, like something that's shiny and bright, uh, then you might have missed out on some really cool stuff in Scripture. So I'm going to just give you one example. This comes from 2 Corinthians 4. I want you to notice the way Paul uses the word glory here and the way that he contrasts it with suffering. He says, this light, not weighty, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. You see that? When we think about glory, we tend to think about people being famous or well-known or highly respected, and those are all certainly aspects of glory, but only superficially so. Biblically, glory has much more to do with the weighty and powerful presence of someone or something. Okay, we got that. Now let's bring this understanding of glory back to what Paul is saying in verse 6. Paul is saying that he didn't preach the gospel so that people would look at him in such a way that his presence would bear down on them like that, as if he were something great. Now, pause. Hold that thought in your head. Uh, I've told you guys before how you should be wary of preachers and teachers of the Bible who always have something like really unique and cool and hidden to show you in the Greek. And oh, if only you had been to seminary and learned how to read Greek and Hebrew, you would be able to see all these cool things that they see. But don't worry, they're going to show you. Okay, be wary of teachers like that. Having said that, I'm about to do that. <laughs> Beware of people who do that too much, okay? If you, if, you, if you don't look at the Greek in this morning's text, you might miss something really cool uh, that's going on here, okay? You, you see it in verse 6. There's actually a little bit of wordplay going on here. If you, if you look at verse 6, you see where he says, though we could have made demands of you. Do you see that language, everybody? Uh, that's a pretty good translation of what Paul meant, and it's good that they translated it that way in English, because if they translated it too literally, it, it wouldn't make any sense to us. But the literal translation is, though having authority with weight. That's what Paul says. Though having authority with weight as apostles. So, let me put the pieces together for you, okay? In the first half of verse 6, Paul says, he doesn't come seeking glory, a sense of weightiness, a sense of authority that bears down on you with his presence. Nevertheless, in the last half of verse 6, Paul says he does have a kind of weight. He does have a kind of authority. Why? Because he's an apostle. That's why he says at the end of verse 6, we could have, 
done these things as apostles. We could have, maybe a good way to think about it in English is like, we could have thrown our weight around, right? To add wordplay on wordplay on wordplay, okay? We could have thrown our weight around as apostles. If you remember who an apostle is, there's kind of capital A apostles and little a apostles. Those are just anyone who's sent out. But a capital A apostle, those are ones, these are men who are specifically commissioned by Jesus to establish the new covenant people of God And it's a very important role. It comes with a distinct kind of authority to it. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the the apostles. So listen, if there's somebody who has a job where like it's such an important role, they're going to lay the foundation for the church, they need to have a particular kind of authority in in order to be able to do that. And what we see in today's text is that Paul, as an apostle, does have that kind of authority. He does have that kind of glory. When an apostle comes around, you should feel a little bit of their weight bearing down on you. And that's not wrong. It's okay to have a little bit of glory like that as long as God is the one who is giving you that glory. What Paul is renouncing in this morning's text is the motivation of the heart that would lead him to preach the gospel for the vain pursuit of that kind of glory. That's why Paul says at the beginning of verse 6, one word, very important, that he did not come seeking glory. In the first half of verse 6, Paul says, I didn't come seeking glory. And in the second half of verse 6, Paul says, but I have it. And Paul doesn't have to seek glory from others because he already knows who he is. You know, the cool kids never, they never really have to show you how cool they are, right? It's always the kids who aren't really cool who always feel like they have to try to prove something, you know? The truly intelligent people never have to flex their intellect. They know who they are. They know the mind that they have. Truly wealthy people never really have to flex their affluence, right? It's usually the people who don't have money and who want to have money that think they have to kind of look the part and buy the clothes and the cars and try to emulate a particular lifestyle in order to project a certain image. Some of the wealthiest people I know, you would never know it. As an apostle, Paul has nothing to prove. Now, it's very important to note here that Paul is not, exaggerate, not exaggerating in saying that he could have made demands of the Thessalonians. He could have thrown away his round. He would have been well within his rights as an apostle to do that. But Paul doesn't ever do that. Isn't that funny? The one who has the weight, who has the authority, who has the ability to do those sorts of things, not only does he not do it with the Thessalonians, but he just never does it. If you remember from the book of Jude, no, excuse me, Philemon, right? Paul is talking to Philemon about releasing his slave, Onesimus, who has become a brother in Christ. And Paul as an apostle, he could have said, hey, Release him. I'm an apostle. Do what I say. But he doesn't do that. Listen to what he says. He says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, right? I'm an apostle. I got the authority. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. We talked about this on Wednesday night. If you were here in our Bible study, you you remember we said that, you know, a husband as the head of the household, he has the ability to put his foot down. But he shouldn't ever really be in the practice of doing that. He should be leading from the front. He should be setting the good example. He should be teaching, instructing, admonishing, repenting, encouraging, strengthening. 
His wife should want to follow him in his leadership so that he never really feels like he has to make any demands. He never has to throw his weight around. The same thing is true for elders in the church. There's a time for an elder to put his foot down and say, this is what we are going to do, or this is what we're not going to do. But man, you're in an unhealthy church if, if your elders ever have to do that maybe more than once in your entire time being there at that church. Elders should be leading from the front, putting forth a good example, teaching, instructing, encouraging, so that they never have to do that. Why? Because Jesus never did that. Paul never did that, even though they could have done that. This is not like Paul. There's so many books on leadership out there, and every couple months somebody always wants to give me a new one and be like, this is the one that's different. Trust me, you should read it. And then I read it, I'm like, no, it's the same thing. But everyone thinks that they have a new spin on leadership tactics. And sometimes people will go back to the Bible and they'll say things like, here's Paul's seven, seven secrets to leadership, his unique you know, way of approaching and thinking about leadership. But friends, this is not unique to Paul. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says this to, to elders who uh, he needed to train up to do a good job leading the church. He says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? Exercising oversight. So there's that language of authority, right? You, you have to, you're the one in control here. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, right? That's the same thing that Paul is saying this morning when he came preaching the gospel. And guess what? Peter learned this from Jesus himself. Paul is not only saying that he's not glory hungry, but that he's not domineering precisely because he's not glory hungry. Now, I think that's pretty much the point of the text. I think we pretty much understand the text now together. But there are just a couple more strings I want us to pull at before we move on. And actually, I say that like the sermon's almost over. It's not. So hang tight. Something else I want us to see here is that it's not wrong to have glory. I already said that once, and you probably gathered that by way of implication as I've said other things so far. But I want to say it again. It's not wrong to have a kind of glory. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells the Corinthians that even though he can't come to them, he's going to send his right-hand man, Titus, right? Can't come to you, I'm going to send you my best guy. But he says, I'm not going to send Titus alone. I'm going to send, and it's interesting that he doesn't name the brother, but he says, I'm going to send someone else. Listen to what he says. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. This brother that's famous for his preaching of the gospel, he has a kind of glory. And apparently he has it universally. Apparently all the churches know who he is and his teaching ability. When this guy talks, people listen. When he teaches, people pay attention. This is the kind of thing that we saw with Jesus. Do you remember, brothers and sisters, when we walked through Mark, how everywhere that Jesus went and taught, how everyone responded to him, they were just like, oh man, who is this guy? Man, he's got a kind of authority we've never seen before. Mark 1.22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. There was a certain weight that Jesus brought in his teaching ministry. Well, apparently this guy's teaching is like that. It has power, authority, weightiness, glory to it, and that's not wrong. 
It's not bad. Having a big platform or having a unique kind of authority is not something to be shunned. And as a matter of fact, God can use it for the glory of his name. God can and does use it. I thank God for famous internet preachers. It's not their fault that so many people would rather listen to podcasts from their favorite preachers than find a healthy church and join it. David, right before he went to go be with the Lord, uh, his last words spoke about the nature of authority and how it could be used well. And this is what he said. He said, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David was a king who had his own unique kind of glory and the authority that comes along with that. And David, as he's passing on this wisdom of the king to his son, doesn't say, shun authority, shun glory, turn away from it all, cast your crown down. No, he says, be wise with it, be careful, and recognize that if you use it well, people will be blessed. The problem, friends, is not glory. The problem is when we pursue these things, this glory, as an end in itself. The problem isn't the pastor who's famous for his preaching. The problem is the pastor who wants to be famous for his preaching. That's sin. But we must remember that the Lord blesses some people with more glory in this life than others. The problem comes for most of us is when we get a little taste of that glory, you know, when people start to pay attention to us, when they start to, our words start to carry a little more weight with them, people start to ask our opinions about things, we start to be included in the secret backroom meetings, when we get a little taste of that, we get addicted. We want more of it. We get a little squirt of serotonin and we have to get another one and another one and another one. We want the titles, we want the applause, we want the cultural customs that express reverence. You know, that's Pastor Sean or that's Dr. So-and-so. Stand-up comedians talk about this all the time. They all tell the same story of the first time that they were on stage and a joke killed. It just landed and the whole room erupts with laughter and the euphoria that they experience from that, Right? They, they get off the stage. There's a warm reception from the other comedians, from the guy who owns the club. They say it's like a drug. And after they get that first hit, they live to try to recapture that feeling. They chase that dragon for the rest of their lives. And they won't give it up for anything. Believe it or not, the Apostle John talks about this exact thing in the Gospels. In John 12, he gives us this fascinating little commentary where he tells his readers that uh, a number of the Jewish authorities had come to believe in Jesus, apparently. Jesus comes, he goes, hey, I'm the Messiah. And they go, uh, okay, and I guess I'll buy it. But they wouldn't confess it. They wouldn't proclaim their belief publicly. Paul has something to say about that later when he writes one of his letters. But for now, l listen to how John describes this. He says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Well, why, why wouldn't they confess it? What would happen with the Pharisees? Well, John goes on, he tells us. 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There was something special, weighty, significant, authoritative about being a part of the synagogue. Like being a part of an exclusive club, there was a glory in it. And they loved that glory. And they knew that confessing Christ would get them kicked out of the club. And they would lose that earthly glory, so they denied Christ. Do you see the contrast between these men and Paul? Paul doesn't give a rip about the glory of man because he already knows that he has a glory from God. So he freely confesses Christ whether he receives any glory or not. I hope you see the practical application of what I'm saying for your lives this morning. If you don't, I'm going to tell it to you, but not yet. I've got a little bit more digging to do, so put a pin in it. Now, it's true that you may be thinking, well, Sean, all this is good and true for an apostle, but what about me? I'm not an apostle, which I hope is something you would say. If you do think you're an apostle, uh, let's talk later, okay? But you may be thinking, Sean, I'm not an apostle. What does this have to do with me? Well, friends, the Bible tells us that we all have a kind of glory. That's actually one string that you can trace from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. I know it's hard to see, but the Bible actually tells us the truth about ourselves, and it starts all the way back in Genesis 1, and it tells us, if you remember, that God created man in his image and likeness. Now, one of the things that that means is that we reflect God's glory. We're like these little mirrors running around creation, reflecting the glory of his image in every nook and cranny of this earth. Now, sin has ruined that, right? Instead of being like mirrors that reflect his, his glory perfectly, we're like a funhouse mirror or a mirror that's had a rock thrown at it and it's shattered and we can only see a distorted image of the glory of God. But it's not always been this way. And I know it's hard to imagine what the glory of man was once like since this is all we've ever known. But God tells us we weren't created to be this way. We were created to have a sense of weight about us. As human beings, we're supposed to bear down on this place like the gravity of Jupiter. Because of sin, we bear down on this place like the gravity of the moon. All flesh is like grass, writes the Apostle Peter. And all our glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. That's what our glory is like after the fall. But for all those who have union with Christ, the glory of the original man is restored when we are united to Jesus by faith. Because Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact imprint of the glory of God. And when we are reunited with him, we have our glory restored to us. Even if we can't always see it. Even if it feels like sometimes we never see it because we still live in these bodies of death. That glory is veiled. But one day we will shed these bodies and we will be the glorious creatures that God has called us to be. This is the exact promise of the gospel that Paul tells us in Philippians 3. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen now, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. One day our spirits will line up with the reality of who we are. And our bodies will too. The reason why we will one day be glorious is because Jesus shares his glory with us. Listen to what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer. Listen to the way he talks to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. This is the desire of Jesus for us to have this glory. Jesus is not like the kid who climbs up the ladder into the clubhouse and then pulls the ladder up behind him, you know? He's the first one to make it up, so he doesn't want anyone else to have it. He's got the glory, and he doesn't want to share it with any of us. No, he's the opposite of that. He is full of glory, and he is eager to share it with all of us. And he's calling all of us into that glory with him, out of the shame, out of the darkness, out of the sin of this fallen world. He says the same thing in 1 John. Listen, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, I bet you're thinking I forgot about that application part, right? You thought I wasn't going to come back to it. Well, I didn't. We're back. If we have a certain kind of glory already, and if we know that Jesus has already bestowed that glory on us in the gospel, and if we know that this glory will one day be fully realized and represented in our bodies, then we should feel no pressure whatsoever to try to get anyone else to glorify us. That's one of the most practical things I can tell you so that you can follow Christ faithfully for the rest of your life. If you understand that you have a glory already from God in the Son, then you are free to spend the rest of your life resting in that glory glorying in that glory, and you are free to stop chasing the glory of man. You no longer have to be a glory seeker. Chasing glory is a fool's errand for anyone, really, but especially the Christian. The Christian who chases the glory of man on this earth, who wants people to look at them and view them and, and hold them in a certain way, when they already have the glory of God, is like somebody who goes to work every day to make ends meet by working at McDonald's, when they have $100 million in the bank account. It just doesn't make any sense. You've already got the treasure. What are you doing going to flip burgers every day? Now let me draw your attention to something else in the text. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says that he doesn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Whether from you or from others. This is a very important detail in our text that should not be passed over. You see, the fact is there are people in our lives that we just don't care about whether or not we get glory from them, right? Let's just kind of, let's go from, let's go from like the bottom rung and work our, our way up from, of people like we just don't care if we get glory from. So you can start with maybe like a homeless person that you pass by on your way to work in the morning. You see them out there with a sign, you probably think about them for a second. Maybe you're inclined to help them. You do help them. But you just don't care about whether or not they glory in you. Up a level from that might just be like a stranger that you pass in the supermarket. Up a level from that might be someone that you know well. But maybe perhaps you just don't 
care for them. You don't really admire them. So this could be like a neighbor or an in-law or a coworker. You know them really well, but you don't really like them, so you just don't really care whether or not they give you any glory. Like, I care what your sister thinks about me. Okay. The reality is, is that for a lot of us, the only people that we care about getting glory from are the people that we already give glory to. The people that we most desperately want to get glory from are the people that we already ascribe value to, the people we look up to. Maybe that's because they have a particular talent, they go with a particular crowd, the cool guys, the right ones, those who are on the inner circle. But Paul says in this, in this text this morning that he doesn't care about glory from the Thessalonians or anybody. It's not like his desire to not see glory is particular to the Thessalonian church. But there's like some other church out there that if Paul was among them, he would see glory from them. Like the church in Rome, for example. After a couple hundred years in church history, things got a little funky. And everybody started imagining that Rome was the most important church of all. Well, friends, Paul didn't think that. It's not like Paul didn't seek glory from the Thessalonians, but if he was in Rome, he would have wanted them to recognize him and to see him as somebody important. Paul's modus operandi is to seek glory from God and God alone. I wonder, friends, I wonder who you want glory from. I wonder who you look up to, who you admire. I wonder who you so desperately want to see you in a particular light. And I wonder why it is that you want glory from them. I wonder if you know who you are, who you were created to be. And if you're a professing believer, I wonder if you understand your identity in Christ. If you did, if I did, if we really did understand who we are in Christ, we would just stop caring. If you've been alive long enough and following Jesus faithfully for long enough, you've probably gone through the ringer on this and you've probably had to learn the lesson the hard way a couple of times not to chase people's glory because you've chased it, you've gotten it, and then you found it to be ultimately unsatisfying, right? You finally make it into the inner circle and then you get inside the inner circle and you see there's nothing special going on here. You're all a bunch of idiots. You're all a bunch of sinners. You're all human just like me. I wonder if you've ever met your hero, the, the man or the woman who bears down on you when you think about them. And then after you get to know them, you see that they're just like everyone else. The Greeks had some interesting ways of thinking about suffering. You can see it quite creatively in their mythology. One of their uh, stories is about Sisyphus, the king who was punished with an eternity of pushing a a massive stone up a steep hill only to have it roll back down to the bottom every time he got near the top, right? His task was almost complete and then the boulder would roll back down. I think another example of this kind of suffering would be a man who can only drink water that makes him more thirsty with every sip. I think that is a pretty good picture of what it's like for us to chase the glory of man. 
You get a little, but it doesn't satisfy. But you think that it should satisfy you, right? And so you drink more. And then you just want more and more and more. But the more you get, the less satisfied you are. The reason why is because it's not the glory that you were created for. The glory of God is the only thing that can satisfy us. And our sin is the only thing that keeps us from enjoying that glory. Jesus says so himself. If you've tuned out, tune back in for this. In John chapter 5, Jesus speaking about why people don't believe in him. He says this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So according to Jesus, we're so busy trying to get glory from one another that we forget that there's a greater glory, the glory that can come from God alone. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what he says. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, something significant struck me when I was reading these two texts together this week. I've read that verse in 2 Corinthians uh, a thousand times. You know, Satan blinds us from seeing the glory of Christ. Okay. But when you see what Christ says about why people don't see his glory and don't believe in him, I think there's something significant to be apprehended here. See, I think we tend to think about Satan blinding us, right, from the glory of Christ by like, he puts his hands over like the eyes of our hearts. He's just, he's putting a block in the way so that we can't see it. I don't think that that's what he does. I think it's much more screw tape, if you've ever read that book by C.S. Lewis. I think it's, it's much craftier. I think what he does is he gets us to care so much about the glory of man that we are functionally blind to the glory of God. It's not that he actually, literally, physically prevents us from seeing the glory of God. I don't think he actually can do that. But what he can do is get us to chase the glory of man so much that we forget that there's a glory of God and that it's so much better. We readily see the glory of God all the time. It can't be hidden from our eyes. The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And it is like it's not even there. Have you guys ever like driven past a building in a part of town that you were familiar with? Maybe a thousand times, but you finally notice it for the first time. You go, what's that building? Where did that come from? When did that get there? When did they build that? For me, my wife would be like, "Uh, that building's always been there. Like, no, it hasn't. They must have just built that in the last six months. She goes, no, that's always been there. Well, I guess I've been blind to it. That's kind of how it is with us in the glory of God. It seems like a good a place as any to bring out the classic C.S. Lewis quote from The Weight of Glory. He says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and the glory of man when infinite joy is offered us in infinite glory. And we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We are pleased when we get the glory of man, but we shouldn't be. It's like making mud pies in the slum. 
when we have the glory of God, the all-expense-paid vacation to the Animal Kingdom Resort at Disney World that has been made available to us in Christ. Friends, what you need to know is that God is never going to ever let glory go to anyone other than himself. Do you know that? God is a glory hog. He says it this way in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Why? Because if you let it go anywhere else, it would be sinful because nobody else deserves it. So he says it's all going to go in the exact right place it's supposed to go, which is to me. But on the cross, we see God relinquish his glory. On the cross, we see Jesus empty himself of glory. Think about Christ on the cross. Naked, bloody, bruised, beaten, spit upon, alone, abandoned, convicted to die as a criminal, and not just any criminal, the lowest of criminals. No glory. No sense of weight. No authority. No fame, no luminosity. Nothing but shame. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the Christian faith is full of ironies, right? Like you lose your life, you find it. The first will be last, the last will be first. Full of ironies like that. One of the great ironies of the gospel is that it is only in relinquishing your earthly glory that you will receive any glory at all. Paul goes on in Philippians 2. He says this, this Jesus who died this criminal's death, this slave's death on a cross, he says, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at his name every knee should bow. That knee bowing, you see that? That weight, that authority. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, that Christ did not pursue his glory while he was on this earth. He relinquished it. And in relinquishing his glory, he was given the greatest glory of all. And this is not some idea that Paul invented about Jesus' death on the cross after the fact to try to make up for how bad it looked. Jesus said that this was going to happen. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, said this to his disciples. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. The same thing is true for you, brothers and sisters. If you glorify yourself, your glory is worthless. So what will it be, friends? Which glory will you choose? The path of the cross or the path of fame?
Do you want your own glory or do you want the glory of God? That's to Christians and non-Christians alike this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never thought about that before, it's very important that you spend some time thinking about it, perhaps even today after the service. Because the way you answer that question, well, your eternity depends on it. Let's pray. Father, none of our motives are ever completely pure. We know that. We recognize that our hearts are corrupted by sin. But we do pray that we can stand before you like Paul and say that our conscience is clear. We do pray that you'll give us the ability to, with confidence, say that you can judge our hearts, that we are preaching the gospel with pure motives. So as we leave this place, Lord, and as we try to live out the gospel, and as we try to communicate the gospel to our friends and family members, our neighbors and our co-workers, our husbands and our wives and our children, we pray that you will help us to do so from a pure heart. Lord, cleanse our heart. We ask in your son's name. Amen.